to you that this morning we come to a portion of Romans that is so foundational and so fundamental and so important for uh, every Christian to really understand. And uh, yet it's a section that I think for American Christians in particular is very difficult for us to comprehend what the Apostle Paul put here in Romans chapter 5, simply because we're so independently minded. And uh, we think of ourselves, you know, as just kind of islands or independent and so forth. And so I, I know this is going to be a challenge this morning, but I want to suggest to you it's the very heart of Romans, it's the very essence of, of uh, really what Paul is seeking to communicate to us. And it's the, it's the concept of what it means to be in Christ, to be actually in Christ. And so uh, I've been praying this week that God would use this time to help us uh, to really comprehend what he intends for us to grab here from uh, Romans chapter 5. Now, you all know that um, Adam and Eve, when they were created, they were created to be God's friends. They were the apex of God's genius creativity. Uh, they were made in his very image, in his very likeness. They were made to be his friends. And uh, when they were influenced by Satan, when they yielded to temptation, when they tried to be like God, when they followed Satan, who himself aspired to take God's place, uh, the consequence was that they became God's enemy. They were created to be his friends, but they became his enemy. They lost their relationship. They were actually cursed by God, brought a cursing uh, into their lives, and uh, death became part of their experience. Death became part of their reality. So um, in Genesis chapter 2, for example, in verses 16 and 17, uh, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the whole garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so death became a part of the experience. And in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, where we pick up today, this is exactly where Paul picks up the story of humanity. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin. Death came into our experience because of one man. And sin came into our experience because of this act of Adam. And so uh, I have a couple of slides this morning that um, I hope uh, will explain, I think, what Paul is saying here. And you'll see the direct connection between Adam's sin and death. Okay, then back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 5, uh, God goes on to explain that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and, and when they were created, he called them man. However, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and in his image. So when Adam and Eve had kids, they were no longer in the image and likeness of God, but they came into the world in the image and the likeness of Adam and Eve. Okay, and so this next slide just represents uh, all the different generations of people, how they've come into the world in Adam's line, and how they are destined for the reality of death. 
Just as Paul's explaining here in Romans chapter 5. We have a direct connection with Adam. And these dots just represent, you know, the uh, different generations of people who've been born after Adam. And that's why, uh, as we saw, Romans uh, 3.23 in the past, we saw that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all come into this world less than what God created us to be originally. Generation after uh, generation. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, uh, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So we inherit sin and death from our ancestor, Adam. We're all born into the world in Adam. Sin is in our nature. And that includes you. You were born into this human line, somewhere along the line of humanity. Uh, you and I entered the scene. You and I are part of this line. We inherit our nature from our father, and our father from our grandfather, and his father from that father, and all the way back to Adam. We all come into this world in Adam, and that's what Paul is saying to us here. So you and I are in Adam, and you and I know it because we all die. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it, but the inevitable thing happens. You get older, and as you get older, your body gets weaker, your body gets sicker, your body wears out, and you know that someday you are destined to die. And it's because of our connection with Adam. And uh, it's our direct connection with Adam. Just think about this. If it wasn't for our direct connection with Adam, babies would never die because they don't sin. They can't, right? When they first are born... Why do babies die? Well, Paul goes on here in Romans chapter 5, and he explains something that I think is important for us to understand. He says, all men sin, right? And verse 13 says, for before the law was given, before the Ten Commandments came into the world, before God made any rules or laws and so forth, um, before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there's no law can't be wrong if there's no law. If there's no Ten Commandments, how can you be wrong? All right? But, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, who brought the law into being. Between Adam and Moses was a period of time, and people died even then before there was any law, before there were any commandments. Even those who did not sin by breaking a command like Adam did. Why? Because we are directly connected to Adam's nature. We're directly, we inherit our nature from Adam. This is how God looks at us. And it's really important to understand this, that we are all descendants of Adam made in his likeness, because note this, it was by God's design that this happened to us. Look at the last part of uh, verse 14. Adam was a pattern of one to come. This was all in the mind of God. This was all a part of a great plan that God had even way before the world began. And I think uh, it's so important for us to understand that God knew exactly what he was doing. Before we resent the fact, as American Christians, that I should inherit Adam's disease, like, is that really fair, God, that because this guy Adam sinned so many years ago that somehow... That's messing up my life today? That because of him, I have to experience death? 
that because of that guy back there, I have to, as Americans, we have a hard time, you know, embracing that idea. I can remember having discussions with people that this doesn't seem right. I mean, I'm a long time away from Adam already. In the mind of God, there are two great heads of the human race, Adam and this pattern of the one to come, who is, of course, Jesus. Adam and Jesus. And in the same way that God sees us in Adam, when we become believers, he sees us in Christ. It's a wonderful gift. And so, uh, somewhere along the line, Jesus enters the stream of humanity. Jesus, the only God-man, comes into this line of humanity, and uh, at just the right time, you remember Romans 5, 6, says at just the right time, while we're still sinners, while we're still his enemies, at just the right time, in God's plan of things, Jesus comes into the stream of humanity, and uh, brings with him a gift. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 5. The gift is not like the trespass. Adam brought the trespass. Jesus brings the gift. The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus, overflow to the many? Again, Paul says, let me say this again. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed the one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So here Paul begins to compare uh, Adam and Jesus as these two representative heads of the human race. And it's so important for us to understand because um, Adam and Jesus are contrasted. The trespass of Adam is contrasted with the gift of Christ. Because of the trespass, trespass, death reigns. Now just think of all the things in our lives that are associated with death. Think of the grief that comes into our life. Think of the diseases that are associated. Think of the terrorism, the suffering. Think of kids growing, out, growing up without parents or, or parents growing up without kids. Think of all the grief, all the sadness that's associated with Adam's trespass and how it actually falls on us. Not to mention that someday you and I will experience the reality of our physical death. Contrasted with that is the gift of Jesus Christ. The gift to be able to reign in life. Because of Adam, we're all condemned. Because of Jesus, we can be justified. To be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned. It's to be freed from the line of Adam and put into the line of Christ. Jesus, you know, is king over a new creation. Adam was given dominance over the old creation. Adam was entrusted with ruling the world. Jesus is ruling over a new creation. And that's why I think Paul says how much more comes to us when we enter uh, the line of Christ. And so... Um, uh, Notice in verse 17, the next verse in this passage of Scripture, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those, listen, 
who receive, who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life, not death, but in life, through the one man, Jesus Christ. You follow Paul's argument? Um, how much more? How does a person receive this gift that the God-man, Jesus Christ, came into the world to give? As a human being, he died on the cross. Uh, you see that on the uh, slide illustration. Uh, but that wasn't the end. Um, as a human being, he died on the cross, but he did not die because of his own sin, and he did not die because he was connected to Adam. He was virgin-born. He had no sin. He was God in human flesh. And it's so important that we understand that he went to the cross not for his sin, but for the sin of Adam and the consequence of all the sins of all the world that have emanated from Adam's trespass. Jesus went to the cross, not just for our sin, but for all the sins uh, of Adam all the way on down. And it brings an abundance of grace. I love that 17th verse. It says, for if by the trespass of Adam, death reigned through him, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life, not death, through the one Jesus Christ, in the same way that Adam has affected your life, like it or lump it, fight it if you want, deny it if you want to be an American more than a Christian. But the truth of the matter is there's a lot of garbage in your life because of what Adam did. In the same way that that's true, when a person turns to Christ and receives the gift that God wants to give us in Christ, we are put in Christ. We are taken out of the line of Adam and put into the line of Christ. And there's an abundance of blessing that begins to flow into our lives. Uh, so verse 18 and 19, how is it that we go from being in the line of Adam to being in the line of Christ? Verse 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. How do you go from being in Adam to being in Christ in God's eyes? You cannot help but be in Adam, but you don't have to stay in Adam. You're born in Adam, but you don't have to stay in Adam. You can experience what Jesus called the new birth into the new kingdom. You can go from being in Adam to being in Christ. Our part is to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sin. That's our part. God asks us simply to take him at his word that when he sent his son into the world and put him on the cross, that it was in our place, that it was for our sin that it was because of our connection with Adam and that God put him there and took the penalty that we deserve for our sin and put it on him. And so you might remember in Romans 3, you know, the 
uh, 22nd verse says, This righteousness from God comes through faith. This gift from God comes through faith. This uh, 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 righteousness that's imputed to us or given to us or credited to our account comes through faith. That's what it says. In Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there's no difference. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter if you're a Swede or a German, an Italian, whatever it is. There's no difference. We all, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So our part is to believe, okay? And God's part, God's part is to take us out of the line of Adam and put us into the line of Christ. Our part is to believe. God's part is to put us into the line of Christ. Whenever a person truly believes, God knows. Because God looks at people's hearts. And belief comes from your heart. When you truly put your faith in Christ, God knows. And you know what God does? He takes you out of the line of Adam and puts you into the line of Christ. You are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. That's the gift. You'll notice the line that represents Christ intersecting the line of humanity has no beginning and no end. It's eternal life. And to be put into the line of Christ is a gift that God gives us. It's something that God has to do. God puts us in the line of Christ. That's something you can't do for yourself. God can do it. But God then asks you to believe it. You have to understand who you are in Christ. And that's why Paul has this section here. Uh, Colossians talks a lot about Christ and and how he has uh, uh, interacted with our lives. Let me just read a couple of verses from here. It says in uh, Colossians 1.13, For God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. God has done this. God has taken us from the line of Adam and put us into the line of Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Once you were alienated from God, you were his enemies in your minds because of your behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. But if you continue in your faith, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And then he says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. That's who you are. When you put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, he forgave us all our sins, canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. When you put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross to sever your relationship with Adam, God attaches your life to Christ. And from that point on, we should, God begins to see us as people who are in Christ, And this is a truth that God invites us to believe, to take him at his word. And God begins to see us not in Adam, but in Christ. And we should begin to see ourselves no longer in Adam, but in Christ, embracing this new life that God wants to give us. And there are a number of things that God says comes with this life. Uh, John chapter 11, when Jesus was uh, talking about Lazarus, 
You know what he said? He said, if you believe in me, you'll never really die. Remember that? If you put your faith in me, you'll never re- your body will die. But your soul, your spirit, the non-material part of you, never die. Um, in um, 1 Peter, I love the way Peter talks about this. Uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 20 uh, says, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Chosen before, in the same way that God attached us to Adam, God is about to attach us to Christ. It was his way of doing it from before the creation of the world. He was revealed in these last times for our sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, okay, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God simply asks us to believe him, to take him at his word. You, you receive this new life by trusting that God's telling you the truth. You are no longer in Adam. You are in Christ. And when you believe him, it changes everything in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we become a new creation. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation for people who are in Christ. There's no more condemnation. I never wake up in the morning and feel like, oh, God's out to get me today. No, I'm in Christ. I have this wonderful relationship with God, my creator, in Christ, no longer in Adam, right? Uh, John 1.12 says that when we trust Christ and God puts us in Christ, we become sons and daughters of the living God. We're his children. The whole relationship between God, Paul's making a great emphasis here that it transfers from one of wrath to one of love. We become literally the sons and daughters of the living God. John 3.16 says when we trust Christ, we have what? Everlasting life. We no longer fear death. Uh, Galatians 3.20 says that God actually puts the spirit of Christ into our spirit and begins to change us from the inside out. So many benefits come to us when we are in Christ. And uh, so Romans 5 Paul goes on, and, uh, and, and he says in the next verse, uh, kind of a radical statement, I think, verse 20, uh, the law, so why did God give the Ten Commandments? Why did God give the law? If we couldn't sin apart from the law, why did God give the law? The law was added so that the trespasses might increase. God gave the Ten Commandments so that you could know you're off the mark. Otherwise, you might think you're just fine. I mean, 99% of people today think they're really good people. Why was the law given? Why did God give the Ten Commandments? Well, so that trespass might increase. But then Paul makes a radical statement. He says, but where trespasses increase, grace also increases. Where trespasses increase, grace also increases. So, you know, I think people moving along in life, and uh, we, most of us think we're pretty good people. I'm thinking I'm a pretty good person. And then somehow I become aware that there's a God in heaven who's holier than I thought, who's uh, given us some uh, ideas as to how he thinks through the Ten Commandments. And I become aware that God is actually holier than I thought, that his standards are actually higher than I thought. Or somehow I become aware I'm more sinful than I thought. 
Grandpa is a pretty good guy, and then all of a sudden I do something really stupid, and the next day I wake up and I say, how in the world could I, a good guy, do something like that? Right? Don't you ever see this on the news? You have people who, it just seems like they're acting totally out of character, and all the neighbors are like astounded, like, I can't believe that that guy shot somebody. He's the nicest guy, yada, yada, yada. And I discover I'm not as good as I think. Now I've got to do one of two things. If God is holier than I thought, then i got to try harder. I've got to have more New Year's resolutions. Because most people think that if I can somewhat approximate the Ten Commandments, I'll merit my way with God. And God says that'll never happen. And you will know if you go that route and you keep trying to be a better person, you, you will discover you'll never be good enough. So then the other thing that people do is they say, well, I've got to pretend I'm better than I am. I've got to deceive myself. I've got to put on a front. I've got to put on an image, right? One of these two things normally happens to people. Remember, we said at the beginning of this series of Romans that as you go on in life, two things should happen. Number one, you should recognize that the holiness of God is way more than you ever thought. And you should also realize that the truth about yourself is way less than you thought. If you're walking with God at all, God will expose these two things to us, right? And so what happens then is that the cross has to get bigger and bigger and bigger to bridge the gap between the reality of who God is and who I am. And that's why we're talking about a gospel-centric life. The cross becomes increasingly more significant as we go along because we recognize how dependent we are on God transferring us out of the line of Adam and into the line of Christ. And it becomes precious to us. It becomes our life. And we begin to live from a gospel. In other words, we take God at his word that I am now in Christ. And that phrase occurs over and over again. And uh, I think that's why Paul warns us in Colossians 1.20, if we continue in the faith, our faith ought to be increasingly valuable and, and first in our life. Because the more we understand God, the more we understand. I think we, we come to learn two things. We learn the truth about God. One of the truths about God is this, right? My thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. I don't think like you think. I don't think like independent Americans think. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways of doing things are not your ways. Don't project your thoughts and your ways onto me, God says. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, my thoughts are way above your thoughts. The way I think is not the way you think. And the way that I act is not the way that you act. And that's why the Bible says, and why it's so precious to so many people, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, uh, lean not on your own understanding. You're dead. If you're, if, you're, if you're an Adam and you're leaning on your own understanding, you're dead. You have no clue about reality. So the first thing we learn about God, that his ways, his thoughts are way different than ours. The second thing is we learn about ourselves. And uh, we learn from God, what God says about ourselves is that, you know, our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's God's statement about us. My heart is deceitful. It deceives me. I think I can live a better life. I think I can pretend my way through to God. My heart is deceitful and it's beyond cure. The Bible says, Jeremiah chapter 17. You can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. You are dependent on 
trusting God's word that he put Jesus on the cross. And when you believe that, that he was there in your place, God will transfer you and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He will put you in the line of Christ, out of the line of Adam. And from that point on, you are in Christ. And there's a whole group of things that begin to change as we started to talk about. So God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In your heart, do you see yourself as in Christ? Do you understand your own life as a person who is in Christ? And that your life is coming to you no longer through Adam and through biological, but through Christ and through the spiritual life that God animates our spirit, which affects our soul, our thoughts, our feelings, our choices, which then in turn affects what we do with our bodies. So the Apostle Paul, you know, makes this statement, and I think um, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, when he says, uh, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. You ever thought about that? If you were still in Adam and you heard that line, how would you think about it? Oh, the way I get more grace in my life is by more sinning. I get it. What a God. So Paul anticipates that that's exactly what the Jewish people in particular are going to say. And you'll notice in chapter 6, um, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Of course not. By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in sin any longer? Get it? Uh, go to verse 15 and 16. Same thing. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Of course not. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as a, uh, to obey them, as a, that you're a slave, you're a slave to the one you obey? Chapter 7, verse 7, same thing. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? You know, Paul's like, of course not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was except for the law. And he talks about his own understanding of coveting somebody else's Corvette. Remember? Paul says, I wouldn't have known that it's wrong to covet somebody else's thing if the law didn't come forth and say to me, that's wrong. You know? And so that's the purpose of the law that we might understand. And so what does it mean to live a gospel-centric life? How do you do that? And I want to suggest in this chapter there are three keys to staying gospel-centric, okay? Three kind of very important uh, keys to living a gospel-centric life. The first is knowing. You have to know the truth. If you're going along in Adam, you can think whatever you think. The world is teaching you all kinds of things. You're picking up what you believe from the TV, from the news magazines, from school, from whatever. You have to know. And so look what Paul says. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 6, he says, don't you know? Don't you know? And then he uses baptism as a metaphor. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ. What do you know? You've got to know some things, right? Look at verse 8. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, and so on and so on. You've got to know some things. You've got to know. A gospel-centric life is dependent on knowing some things. Don't lean on your own understanding. Every believer in Christ reads, studies, 
has conversations about God's word. Because you've got to know. Like, you've got to know that if you're a believer, you're in Christ. How are you going to know that if you don't let God tell you? You've got to know that your life changed. How are you going to know that? Because God reveals it, and then he asks us to believe him. That's how God has always operated. From Abraham on, God says, you know, God credited Abraham with righteousness. Because why? Because Abraham believed God's word. God always says and then invites us to believe, and that changes us. And so we've got to know some things. Uh, you have to know about your identity in Christ. And Paul uses baptism here as a metaphor. We have to know that we are now in Christ, transferred out of the line of Adam and into the line of Christ. The second thing is you have to take what you know and you have to count on it. You have to believe it. You have to reckon it, the King James Bible says. It's in verse 11. He says, uh, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Reckon yourself. Believe this about yourself. You're dead to sin. You're dead to it. Uh, to reckon, to believe, to count yourself is the second step. First, we've got to know. Then you've got to take what you know, and you've got to apply it personally to your own personal life. You've got to say, I know this, and therefore, you know, I'm going to reckon this to be true about me. I'm going to consider this the truth about who I am. I'm going to make this my identity. You can't just know these things. You've got to count them to be true. You've got to consider them to be true. And this word, to reckon or to consider or to count on, is in the present tense, which means that I've got to keep on counting on this being true. Because you know what? Someday you're going to wake up and you're going to say, I don't feel like my life is in Christ. And I'm telling you, don't count on your feelings. Don't reckon on your feelings. You're going to wake up some morning and you're going to say, you know, I don't understand this whole thing. I had a conversation with a young man not too long ago and he was like, I don't understand this. How could God hold me responsible for what Adam did? You're telling me I'm dying because of what Adam did back then? How could, what kind of God is that? I don't buy it. I said, no, you just don't know the truth. See? And you're not, because you don't know it, you can't reckon it to yourself. And you can't take God at his word because you're trusting in your own understanding of things. And it's leaving you in a mess. And that's why your life is all messed up. You know? Nineteen times in the book of Romans is this word, count on it. Or reckon or consider. Nineteen times. Faith is not just knowing but it's knowing and believing. It's reckoning. It's considering this is the truth, okay? And that's the second step. If we're going to live a gospel-centric life, first we've got to know what the gospel is and its relationship to us, and then we've got to keep on counting it to be the truth, that we are dead to our old life and alive to this new life, and it's all based on the cross. So knowing is about your mind. It's about feeding your mind with the Word of God. Right? Reckoning or counting on is about your heart. It's about believing it deep enough to apply it personally. And then the third thing is, uh, Paul says, uh, we've got to make an offering. Listen to this. In, um, uh, let's see, verse 13. Uh, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather Offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. 
You've got to know you've been brought from death to life. You've got to reckon it personally true. And then you've got to respond by saying, I'm not going to offer the parts of my body to sin. I'm going to offer them to righteousness. I'm going to offer them to God. Three times, Paul says in verse 15, um, or 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, or, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Or verse 19, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness, which leads to eternal life. It's offering. It's like, I've got to know what the truth is. I've got to reckon it personally to myself. And then I've got to respond by the way I live. I've got to show this to be true to the world around me and to myself. This is an act of our will. So it's our mind, it's our heart, it's our will. Take what you know, believe it personally to be true, and then respond by offering yourselves as if you were alive in Christ and dead to sin. That's the way we live a gospel-centric life, a yielding of our life to God, not out of guilt, not out of impulse, not out of trying to gain something with God, but by a reasoned belief as to who we actually are. Um, it's so significant. And so Paul goes on here. You know, he says, uh, verse 13, uh, don't offer the parts of your body to sin. Don't offer your mouth to sin. Don't offer your eyes to sin. Don't offer your tongue to sin. Don't offer your feet and your hands to sin. Take your body and make it an offering to God. Use your tongue, use your eyes, use your ears, use your feet, use your hands to the glory of God. It's about what we offer ourselves to, who we offer ourselves to. Uh, our tongue, our mind, our eyes, your sexual parts. Don't offer them to sin. Offer them to God to be used for his glory. That's the result of knowing and reckoning and then offering of ourselves to God. Barbara and I were um, up at the Big E, the Eastern States Exposition, a number of years ago, and, uh, you know, uh, I think we just decided one Saturday to take off and go there, and uh, we didn't pay attention to the forecast, so it started to rain, right? So uh, we ducked into one of these big arenas that's up there, and inside this arena, uh, there were sheepdogs uh, uh, that were having a competition, and it was the most fascinating thing. Uh, they would have a group of sheep down at one end of the arena, and there'd be a master and a dog at the other end of the arena. And the goal was, how fast could you get this group of sheep, you know, into this pen that was over there? And so uh, you would watch, and this master would just blow this little whistle, and this dog would take off. And he'd just run with such heart. And he'd run left and run right, and he'd chase these scragglers, he'd bark, he'd crouch down, he just... You could tell this thing was bred and was in its glory rounding up these sheep. He'd nip at their heels. These sheep would run. They'd get into the pen. And so the stray one, he'd go whipping around, you know, and bark at the thing, and the thing would run. And it was really very interesting to watch. It all timed and all of that. And you could tell two things. There was a master who loved that dog, who had obviously spent incredible amounts of himself investing and loving that dog. And there was a dog who found his glory 
in being obedient to the slightest movement of his master. That master would like move its eyes and his dog would respond. He'd have one eye on the sheep, one eye on the master. And I couldn't even tell what the master was doing. And the sheep, uh, the dog would just know exactly what to do. What a picture of a master named Jesus who gave his life to love us. And the freedom and the glory that comes to us as children of God when we respond to the slightest commands with instant obedience and find our glory in the freedom that comes to us from being in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, this is a passage of Scripture that just... uh, it's so deep for us, especially as Americans, we confess to you that we, we're so locked into thinking of ourselves as independent islands. And it's hard for us to attach ourselves to Adam or attach ourselves to Christ and to think that either the curses or the benefits of these two representative heads of the uh, human race would flow to us. But that's what you teach us here. That's what we understand. That's what we come to know. And so, Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that you would take the truths of these passages and that you would bring them home into our hearts and that we would see ourselves the way you see us, no longer in Adam, but in Christ, no longer under the curse, but in freedom, no longer suffering because of the trespass, but glorified because of the gift of Jesus Christ. And may we live in such a way that we offer ourselves to you so that we become obedient, and in our obedience find the freedom of the glory that you made for us to experience. And may we find joy and peace in the process. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.